Hi, this is Maya Maida, and you're listening to the Food Solidarity Podcast. Conversations with people around the world who are using the power of food to create local change. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Sam Scroy and Sarah Abdelrahim, co-founders of Tables Without Borders, an organization based in Washington, D.C., which began one year ago as a dining series to showcase the culinary skills and passion of refugees coming to the area. Welcome, Sam and Sarah, and thank you so much for being here today. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I'd love to hear from both of you about how you guys started Tables Without Borders. What was your inspiration and what's the backstory? So our inspiration for starting Tables Without Borders dates back to our individual experiences working with refugees and asylum seekers in different capacities. I spent a year in a Greek refugee camp studying the integration of refugees into the Greek education system And every day I would go to the refugee camp and I witnessed incredible cuisine and I was able to interact with refugees and asylum seekers from around the world who were seeking a career in the culinary industry, but there was something missing. You had this incredible talent in the refugee camp and you had these amazing restaurants in Athens where the refugee camp was located but there was a missing link connecting these two entities. So coming back to the United States after having experienced the lack of connection between this talent that I saw and the culinary industry in Greece, I sought to create um, a solution that I thought would bring the best of both worlds, having people who have this culinary skill set and sharing that culinary skill set with the community. And I know Sam um, also has a background in working in resettlement and helping refugees, um, which I'll let him speak to. And he'll be able to kind of explain how we put both of our experiences together to create Tables Without Borders. Yeah, so I worked uh, for a resettlement organization in New Orleans. um, And my role there was to help refugees that had recently arrived to the US and to New Orleans find jobs. Um, so as many people know, that's, you know, it's a difficult process. Um, a refugee comes to this country oftentimes without too many contacts in the city that they've been resettled in, um, job prospects or things like that. So our job was to help them find a job that they were, uh, interested in as, you know, quickly as possible so that they can start earning a paycheck and being able to cover their bills. I was, I think repeatedly kind of frustrated by our process because it felt very rushed. We felt, I felt that um, a lot of the times we weren't setting people up to succeed and that we were putting them in jobs that didn't quite fit their interest or their skills or their background. Uh, So from my perspective, Tables Without Borders was an amazing opportunity to kind of make that resettlement process a little bit easier uh, to provide people. And I guess we'll, we'll get into kind of what we do, but to provide people more time uh, through an internship to not only get paid and have income, but also to decide, you know, is this something I want to do to, to make connections, to make contacts in the restaurant industry and to use the skills that I saw as kind of one of the most common skills that people 
uh, were coming to this country with culinary skills and being able to utilize them in a way uh, to make a living and support their families. And what do you think it is about food in particular, the culinary world that offers such a unique possibility for becoming acclimated in a new country and um, just overall promoting justice for refugees and asylum seekers? Uh, food in, in our eyes is the great equalizer because it's something that you make with love and you make with your hands and you make using the traditions and the skills that you were taught growing up. Um, you don't need to speak um, the same language when you're cooking. It's watching and learning and developing as well as learning alongside other people, which is what makes our internship program so unique. So a lot of our chefs um, come with an English level that is not advanced because they're newly arrived to the US. But it's amazing when you see them working alongside American chefs in the kitchen, how well they adapt to the environment by just watching and by seeing how food is made and how different types of food are made. So from our perspective, giving someone um, such as an emerging refugee or asylum seeking chef the opportunity to cook and share with others the cuisine that they grew up with essentially places them in a, in a position of power because they're doing what they've done their whole lives and they're not, they don't feel out of place or they don't feel like they're doing something foreign to them. It's what they're, what they've grown up with. And I think using food as the tool to bridge the gap between the community that's hosting and the community that's newly arrived is the perfect solution because people are able to showcase um, their home country's cuisine and it doesn't need a book or a class or anything in order to do that. It's something so innate to us as humans. And I, I think that's what's so beautiful about social gastronomy in general because it, it, it is in essence the great equalizer that doesn't require an education or a or a certain level of language or a certain degree, so to speak. Um, so that's kind of where we come from and, and how we feel this program um, really helps bridge the gap. Sarah's exactly right, is the great equalizer. And that's what we saw when we did the dinner series um, last June. Um, by putting that on, we met all you know, types of people who wanted to come and support. Uh, try the chef's food. And from that experience, I think so many different things came out of it. Obviously jobs for some of the chefs, um, but also people like made new friends. And I think a lot of times we, you know, definitely do, don't focus on that as much, but I think that's a powerful thing also as far as just being welcomed into, into a community, um, meeting people, knowing that not only do they you know, enjoy your food and are willing to pay for it, but also are happy that you're a part of the community. Um, so it was a really beautiful experience that we wanted to build on um, going forward. That sounds incredible. Um, I agree with you. We don't tend to focus so much on on these friendships and a sense of belonging and dignity that is so core to community-based work and um, these relationships tend to be 
it's hard to reflect them in impact numbers. So I, I love what you just said, Sam, thank you. I was wondering, Sarah, what are some of the organizations that, or some of the restaurants that you work with, uh, with Tables Without Borders, whether it be for the dining series or for the internships? So we were very lucky um, when we started our dinner series to work with some of the best restaurants in DC, um, a few of which are in the, the top 20 best restaurants in the DMV area, as well as Michelin star restaurants. And what we found is that the misconception that some people have about top restaurants and top chefs um, not being as, um, you know, as, as open to necessarily, you know, welcoming others or, you know, being the be, being change makers in their communities is very false. And I think that experience really showed us that some of the best hearted people who really want to help um, newcomers integrate through, you know, this process is, is really some of the best restaurants in the country and that's what makes them the best. So the dinner series was, I think, well received on multiple fronts. We sold out on all of our nights and there were waiting lists by guests who wanted to experience a Tables Without Borders dinner. So there's, it's a testament to the community waiting in lines outside of these restaurants just, just to try um, our chef's cuisine. Um, the restaurants themselves and the head chefs and owners were so excited about bringing a guest chef to come and cook their cuisine and really debut themselves to the community. So after our dinner series, we were getting emails from restaurants around the country that wanted us to bring Tables Without Borders to Austin, to New York, to San Francisco, and to Los Angeles. And that really just shows that restaurants are looking to do something new and um, really look, they're looking to be change makers in the community beyond just, you know, dining and, you know, making money off of the food that they make, but it's, it's more than that. So I think, and then on the, the last thing I would say in terms of how this was received was we were getting emails from resettlement organizations saying, is this gonna continue? Can we send you more clients? So I think the proof of concept was perfect during the dinner series because it showed us that there's a supply and demand of refugee chefs and of restaurants that are interested in hosting them. So it's really, our responsibility to keep it going for as long as people are looking to welcome our chefs and for for emerging chefs looking to take advantage of our of the opportunities that we provide them. So, do you see that Tables Without Borders your model is something that could be replicated by restaurants who maybe around the world and other places who would like to be more social and have a greater impact, whether that be integrating refugees, bridging social economic inequalities, or um, yeah, just bringing bringing the highlight away necessarily from this like top chefs and more to this social impact. Yes, I think so. And, and that's, I think, one of our goals um, to be able for our model to be used in other places to help as many people as possible. I mentioned, I think, you know, the challenges of those few, first few months after someone arrives here. Um, we work 
specifically with refugees and asylum seekers, but it's not necessarily unique. Immigrants obviously coming to this country, there's a whole process of um, acclimation and you know all the practical aspects, finding a job. And I think one of our goals is to create a model in which restaurants can serve to you know, help the people that they benefit so much from. So many back of house workers work so hard and contribute, you know, so much to the success of these restaurants um, to be able to welcome people in a way that sets them up for success, to provide them with the experiences and skills that, um, you know, maybe the chefs wish they had when they were starting out, whether they were immigrants or um, working in the community that they're from to be able to provide someone with those skills. So we're trying to create a model in which um, people have the time and specific customized instruction to that they're provided with that instruction um, and provided with the time to be ready to excel. Um, so I think our model is one that restaurants can provide those skills to people without sacrificing their bottom line. Uh, they actually get to host a dinner at the end and invite the community to you know, come out and support. So um, our goal is definitely for it to be taken to places across the country. So Sarah, can you walk us through a little bit of the journey of Tables Without Borders and, and tell us what's changed because of COVID, um, like so many, for so many of us around the world, we've had to kind of rethink and reshape how we, our practices and how we work. Mm. And one of, it's, it's worth noting that uh, your innovative response to the pandemic is one of the reasons why you guys received the Food Solidarity Fund. Um, so, I'd just love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, definitely, Maya. So pre-COVID, our internship model was um, featured the, the internship, which is an eight-week um, internship that is hosted at the restaurant, working alongside the head chef and the team of that restaurant. And this internship culminates in essentially a graduation, which manifests itself in a big dinner hosted by the restaurant um, where our chef interned. And this dinner, as Sam alluded to earlier, is a celebration of this individual's training and of their culinary tradition. And the restaurant serves a special menu created by the chef where individuals from the community line up outside the door or um, you know, try to get a, a seat at the table to be able to experience this, this meal prepared by our chef. Obviously the internship um, is very high touch. So it involves interacting with the chef, with the team, a lot of R&D um, and training. And the culmination is even more high touch with this big dinner um, where everyone is just crammed in the restaurant and so excited to welcome the emerging chef um, to the community. Since COVID we've had to put our internship programs um, to, we had to put our internship programs to a halt because restaurants were closing. Um, we, a lot of our partner restaurants were, were only offering carry out and delivery, if that. And it kind of turned the restaurant industry on its head 
but since restaurants had to pivot, we kind of walked alongside that pivot with them and pivoted ourselves by um, reintroducing our internship program to benefit restaurants that are struggling as a result of the pandemic. So because Tables Without Borders provides the pay for our emerging chef, we essentially give the restaurant a helping hand for eight weeks and we take on the pay for that individual and the restaurant receives someone who's able to learn but contribute to the restaurant's daily operations. So that's a positive for the restaurant. And in return, because restaurants are at limited capacity now for their teams, it's actually helped us because our, our chefs receive more one-on-one -on -one time with the head chef um, because there's it's less chaos in the back of the house. And we've kind of morphed our internship program to still continue, as I mentioned it previously, with the difference being the culminating dinner. And that dinner is more um, carry out and delivery with the option for individuals to dine in the outside patio areas of the restaurants, but still keeping true to the, the feel of what a Tables Without Borders dinner provides, which is you're able to order a box that has a full meal as you would receive it at the restaurant with a biography of our chef, um, their background and the country they come from, as well as their skill set. And you're essentially just bringing a piece of us home to you and your family and experiencing it at home, which we found is a concept that a lot of people are open to. And it's something that really um, stays true to who we are because we're able to deliver on our promise that the community welcomes this emerging chef by trying their cuisine. And a percentage of each of those dinners still goes back to the chef which in turn is our model at its best. So um, I think we've pivoted and we're still pivoting kind of as the, the months go to see what the future looks like, but we're, we're so excited that our model hasn't been completely um, done away with, but we found that it's actually helpful and um, we've been very, we've, we've been very um, diligent at adapting it to the changing times. So we're continuing that um, when the pandemic hit and the months after, um, Sarah mentioned the uncertainty and restaurants closing. Um, so we stopped our internships at that point uh, just because you know we we didn't feel comfortable putting people in restaurants, um, not you know sure about the safety of it, and also because so many were closed. Um, so what we pivoted to was doing food um, donations. So we raised. Uh, a good chunk of money thanks to organizations like Social Gastronomy Movement, which um, very generously supported us and a few others. Um, and to date, we have made and donated 8,000 meals. Um, so to a whole bunch of different organizations in DC, um, it was all in the greater DC area, um, nonprofits, homeless shelters, um, a mosque during Ramadan, many others that reached out to us requesting um, food. So what we were able to do was compensate our chefs to um, make, the, make the meals that we then donated. Um, luckily, we were able to use restaurants, kitchens that were closed down during that time. Um, so while we are continuing to do that, and uh, one of the great things that I think has come out of COVID is us incorporating the food donation into the internship model. So before um, we were just doing the eight weeks. Now 
we're actually um, having chefs as part of the internship uh, make several hundred meals, which are then donated at the end. Um, so it, I would say it's um, slowed down a little bit as we've used the funds to make those 8,000 meals, but we're still finding ways to create food donations as part of the model, just because obviously the need is so high, obviously here in the US and in DC, COVID is not going away right now. It's only becoming more severe um, and people's economic situations are still also severe. So we wanna to continue to be able to uh, support our community that's always hosted us. From, from our perspective, how beautiful and amazing it is that in a world that is so politicized, especially here in the US with the recent elections, that you find these Syrian refugees, these you know Ivorian asylum seekers, um, these Iraqi refugees who really haven't been a part of the US community for very long, um, putting on their aprons, putting on their gloves and masks and embracing um, the concept of feeding others who really need it during this time by making thousands of meals that they that we donate for um, for the most vulnerable members of our community. So I, I just think it's a testament to the, the power of food to overcome all of the um, all of the negative rhetoric that you find around immigrants is is seen in this really small example that we've been able to show our community of recently arrived immigrants cooking for Americans and for, you know, really anyone that needs it, regardless of their background, their race, their religion, but just food insecurity in general is, is something that we're trying to, to tackle in small part by donating these meals. So I just think there's a lot of symbolism here and, and I wanted to draw attention to that because it's so innate to our model and to social gastronomy movements around the world. I love what you just said, and Sam, um, since you guys are in the heart of American politics, do you feel that that influences um, what your your work at Tables Without Borders, or do you try to remain, you know, out of the political scene there? Um, I mean, just as a nonprofit, we try to be apolitical as far as not like taking political stances and things like that, but. I think there's two ways of looking at it. On one side, um, you know, it's not political and we're just here to help people uh, when in their time of need, um, when they need a meal and there's not an easy way to get one, um, especially during COVID with so many people losing a steady paycheck. Um, but you know the other side is that of course it's political <laughs> um and all things are and you know there's a reason that people find themselves during this in a time of need um because they're not receiving the services that are required to you know maintain them um and that we're filling a small gap uh, or sorry a huge gap and we're filling it to a small extent obviously there's enormous food need out there um, just in DC alone. Um, and it's not just food, obviously people's needs are much greater than that. You know, it's housing, it's uh, a job, it's 
labor rights. So, you know, we're taking one aspect of that, um, specifically food, but you know, the, the whole spectrum of um, people's, like what they need to survive is so much bigger than that. So in, in that sense, um, you know, providing food is entirely political, um, but I think, um, you know, we're, we're doing our best to help with the resettlement process specifically. So not just um, food donations, but also helping people uh, restart their lives. And that's something that I think countries and host communities around the world are also trying to figure out, um, oftentimes in cooperation with the government, oftentimes individually separate from the government, but that's something that's going on around the world that is sometimes political, sometimes not, but that's another aspect of our uh, mission. I hope that kind of makes sense. So kitchens typically are, you know, they tend to be stereotyped as being like a hot, angry, <laughs> tough kind of environment, um, especially kitchens in some of the best restaurants in the world. But as I, going back to an earlier point you made, I was wondering, is it always the case that these kitchens are welcoming and an easy place for kind of this integration process to happen? Or do you tend to have challenges there uh, with some of the restaurants you work with? This is a challenge. And one of the things we try to do is be very intentional about um, the restaurants that we're selecting and making sure that they uh, are on board, not just with, you know, hosting the intern and being able to get their help, but also with the mission. Um, so that's a really important piece of the puzzle is talking to them beforehand and making sure there's an understanding that um, this is an instructional internship and the point is for them to gain from the experience, not just kind of be thrown into a, a, a chaotic environment and figure it out. Yeah, I think Sam explained it very well, um, just about how we choose our restaurants and how surprising it is that the best restaurants in DC happen to have the most caring and welcoming um, head chefs and owners that our community is fortunate to, to have. So they understand this individual is new to the country and they're willing to meet them at where they are, which I think is how we ensure this program is successful in the long run is you pick restaurants and host chefs and you work with individuals who understand that the journey of resettlement is not perfect. And to be able to have compassion and, and empathy to meet this individual, whether it's with their language or their um, what they've been through in their home country, fleeing war or violence, that you meet them at where they are and then through the guidance of the internship and of the welcoming environment, our hope is that at the end of the internship, you bring them one step closer to resettlement. Now for some, it's a few feet and for some it's a few inches, but the hope is that you're advancing this individual and helping them develop in some way. And that, that is true to how our job as founders in singling out restaurants that have these welcoming environments whether for immigrants or for undocumented people or for people who are LGBTQ and are seeking asylum themselves, you find that the environments in the kitchen are all, are all welcoming and are very, um, are very kind to those that 
may be coming from various backgrounds. And the second thing that I think it's important to highlight, and a lot of our restaurants ask us this, is we do not put an intern in a restaurant if they do not have any culinary background at all from their home country or have not received a few a training course in the US that helps them become certified to work in a US kitchen. So safety is the number one priority for us. And we've had some excellent home cooks go through an FDA approved um, kitchen training that only takes eight weeks to become certified. And that is health and safety regulated um, to be able to work in US restaurants. And for some of our other interns, we've worked with chefs that are um, professionally trained in France and in their home countries and have owned restaurants in the past. So those individuals obviously understand the grit, as you mentioned, Maya, and the level of, um, of professionalism that requires in a, that a kitchen requires. So we obviously want to set up our interns for success. And in doing so, we've got to establish some standards that will only ensure their long-term success instead of offering the internship to everyone who just needs an income for a certain amount of time. And then the safety and the, the quality of our internship program is compromised as a result. So I think those are kind of the big things in, in what we look for and what makes the internship successful to keep up with what you mentioned about the kitchen standards and what the lifestyle is. Wow, that's great. Um... That seems like a, a decent amount of work and relationship building um, between Tables Without Borders and just the entire restaurant industry um, in DC. And is it just the two of you that work um, at Tables Without Borders or do you have a team as well? We have a team of volunteers. So we are the um, two full-time employees um, and then we use volunteers to help with each individual internship to manage it, to plan the dinners. Um, the one thing that I would say about working with restaurants, um, a certain level of chaos sometimes and just intensity of, is inevitable. Uh, that's the nature of it. And I think one of our goals as well is to ensure, to provide that experience and to ensure that the intern um, you know, wants to make a career in that. And one of the problems that I saw in the resettlement agency is that we were putting people in places, oftentimes restaurants before, I think they had a full picture of what the job entailed, uh, what skills were required, and we just, you know, weren't setting them up for success. So I think through the internship, obviously our goal is to help them um, get a job if that's what they're looking for, either at the restaurant that's hosting them or a different restaurant. But we've had people that went through the internship and said, like, whoa, this is not at all what I expected. Um, maybe it was too chaotic. Maybe they found a different career path. And that's, you know, I think we could look at that as a failure, but really, I don't think it is at all. What that uh, shows is that I think we prevented someone from getting into a job that they wouldn't have liked and then kind of scrambling to figure out their next move. So that's another, I think, you know, role that the internship plays provides eight weeks for someone to figure out what exactly uh, the gastronomy world is like, whether um, they want to do it or not. And, and that's an important piece as well, I believe. I'd like to hear about some of the 
your favorite stories, your favorite stories of success with Tables Without Borders. Who are who are some of the people we should know about? Yeah, thanks, Maya. Um, I think whenever we talk about the stories of Tables Without Borders, it's when I um, I get super excited because it's so it's so amazing to talk about you know the people that have been through our program and that find value in the work that we're doing. And I would say that my I mean I love I love all of our interns. Um, I think I'm impartial. I'm taking on this mom like quality right now by saying I'm. I, I love all the individuals that we've interacted with, but specifically working with Chef um, Williams Bacon from Ivory Coast has been an incredible journey for us because he comes to the US with over 30 years of professional culinary experience and he was trained in Marseille, France, uh, and that's where he received his culinary certification. So you have this individual who is new to the US, he's an asylum seeker, and he comes with over 30 years of culinary training. And as we meet, as we met him for um, intaking him for the internship program, there is such humility in how he speaks about his talents. And he has such a willingness to start off even as the lowest level of the totem pole in the restaurant. So he was saying, I start, he will you his favorite phrase is, I'll start off really low and I'll work my way up. I know that the US is a new place for me and I will start off from the bottom and continue to work my way up until I become the person that I was in, in Ivory Coast. And I think that's so beautiful because he has found, he has learned so much from our internship program and he's gained a lot of connections and of visibility through working with us. But it's a, it's so beautiful to see someone who knows so much um, come in and have a willingness to become a student at his age and at his experience level to really take in all that our internship and all that the US culinary industry has to offer that he may not have learned back home or in France. And that's a success story in my eyes because it shows that education and interning and learning happens at all ages and at all experience levels. It's not just for those who start off knowing nothing. It happens at all different points in our lives. So for him to find success in our internship shows me that anyone can have success because he is already so wise and yet he's, um, and yet he's approaching this process with such grace and um, and humility by starting off from as an intern essentially and going back a few levels than what he came in with. I think one of the experiences that stands out to me uh, is actually from the dinner series last June uh, 2019. We worked with a young chef from El Salvador who had studied in a culinary program in El Salvador before she came here. And when she arrived here, she was working at Chipotle. Um, we got connected to her through a resettlement organization in the area who uh, introduced us because she was someone that, you know, had big ambitions and things that she wanted to do, uh, was just starting out. Um, so we paired her with a restaurant here in DC. And I think 
it was really an amazing experience, not just because of how like, great the night was, how many people came out, and of course how delicious the food was, but also because of the impact that it had. Um, she received a raise the next day in Chipotle, and then soon thereafter kind of continued on to another job that was more in line with her vision of where she wanted to be. Um, so she's um, at a different restaurant now preparing food and has continued to excel. So it's been amazing to kind of keep watch her career, even though it's in a very early stage, make certain kind of leaps towards the way she wants to go. Um, and she, you know, her dream was to open a Salvadoran restaurant in DC. And I know that she's continuing to plan and we've been able to put her in touch with people. So um, it's just amazing to you know play a small piece in that journey. Um, and then a bonus of that was the Washington Post covered her story and her mom wasn't able to come from El Salvador with her. So her mom's in El Salvador, but she sent copies of the newspaper article back to her. So, you know, it was a privilege and it still is a privilege for us to see her grow in her career, but also to be able to share that with her mother through that, um, through that article was just an added bonus. So it's been amazing to watch her success. Um, Sam and Sarah, I'd like to hear from both of you here. I have a final question, and it's one of my favorites. Um, if you've heard other episodes, you may know what's coming. Imagine that we are living in the year 2030, and it's a perfect world where uh, all of the SDGs have been accomplished, so there's zero hunger, zero poverty, what does the food system look like in this world? And what was Tables Without Borders' role in getting it there? So in, in a perfect world where all of the things you just mentioned are in place, in my mind, Tables Without Borders helped contribute to simply being the bridge that connects newly arrived refugees, asylum seekers, and victims of human trafficking who have a culinary skill set or a desire to pursue a career in the culinary industry, simply bridging the gap that they would otherwise struggle to overcome in order to build connections to welcoming environments in the DMV area that are able to help them grow and sustain their livelihoods by helping them through an internship or through connections in to jobs in the culinary industry. And simply thinking about it from a bridge perspective doesn't really seem like it's that difficult of, of a task because you have talent and you have a demand for, for this talent. So just being the bridge is almost the simple solution to connecting this talent pool to those that to those opportunities out there that would benefit from this talent. So in my mind, our jobs are pretty easy. It's just being in an environment that is able to fairly connect these individuals to this these opportunities. And we hope that in, in our positions, we're able to make those connections and build those relationships. So it's seamless for individuals as they come in to pursue these opportunities without having to struggle for years, even decades before they do what they love. 
um, that process is as smooth and as quick as possible upon their arrival? Yeah, I think um, just touching on a lot of the topics that Sara mentioned, you know, a much better food system than we have now, I think, especially from the issues that we're trying to um, touch on is so much more, you know, equitable um, and just. So it's it's even more things than I think that we're touching on in our current internship and what it does. Access to capital. Um, if you want to start a restaurant, I was just mentioning um, the chef who came from El Salvador. Obviously, she's early on in her career, but it can be so much more difficult to get your hands on money if you don't have, you know, friends and family with money to loan you. Access to connections, like people that are able to help you out. Maybe that's, you know, who knows, graphic design or providing funding or feedback or help with the menu. Yeah, access to people that really have been here before. And I think when we look at the food system as it is now, we're seeing so many people that come and work so hard and yet don't see the same progression, I think, as as they deserve. Um, so right now our our internship is set up to help those people in their early stage of their resettlement and to provide that boost. But long term, there's so many other aspects to it. And in a more ideal world, I think people that are recently arriving here um, and this goes even beyond just restaurants, this goes to the resettlement process in general, have the resources they need to more, you know, justly resettle because um, what we see is that refugees in the US specifically contribute, you know, billions of dollars to the economy and are a clear um, good investment that the US government makes that they repay the investment by quite some extent. Um, so we need to continue to be able to help people resettle in a way that kind of allows them to return those, make those returns early on, um, not wait decades to go through different jobs and things like that. So right now we're, we're trying to fill a small portion of that in the early stages of resettlement, but a food system that is more equitable is one I think that we're all imagining and, and striving towards. Thank you all again for tuning into the Food Solidarity Podcast. The social gastronomy movement would like to wish you a very happy holiday season full of joyful moments around the table, health, safety, and love. See you next year.